Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A couple of quick things before we kick off. We are live on Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club for Podcast for Palestine with an incredible lineup of special guests, some very special guests, live music and plenty of entertainment. All proceeds are going to Gaza, so Get your tickets now on eventbrite.ie. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It'll be a great night for a great cause. And I hope to see lots and lots and lots of you there. And I also need to remind you that the Tortoise Shack is completely reliant on you. We've no ads, we've no sponsors. The only way we keep the show on the road and can continue to have the type of conversations that you're about to listen to right now is if some of you chip in, pay it forward, and keep it free for everyone. And the easiest way to do that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So if you can go without the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, give it to us. Help us keep the show on the road in 2024. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing. Please come on board and I hope to see lots of you next Sunday evening. Hello everyone and welcome to a new podcast episode brought to you by Yusuf Jamal here in Istanbul. Helena Coben from Washington DC. Helena is the president of Just Word Educational and uh, our great producer Tony Groves of the uh, Eco Chamber um, uh, podcast. Uh, today is uh, the 23rd of January 2024. It's uh, 4 p.m. here in Istanbul, and we're going to talk about Gaza and the recent developments and the, um, you know, losses the Israeli military suffered over the uh, past uh, 24 hours, but also the more losses that Palestinians have been suffering um, over, uh, you know, the past three months, more than three months, an average of 250 Palestinians are killed every day. Uh, including in what Israel designates as the uh, safe uh, zone in Mawasi, um, where Israel bombed the tents of Palestinians, displaced Palestinians, and killed dozens of them yesterday. Uh, welcome, Tony and Helena, to, to the show. Hey, Yusuf, how are you? It's you look tired. It's been a stressful week for everybody, no doubt. But how? What are you hearing? Is the latest from your contacts and your family in Gaza? Uh, so after eight days of blackout, I was able to connect with my family. And uh, this was for two days only. The blackout is back. And um, it's, you know, this is another form of psychological warfare and torture for us. But thankfully, I was able to reach out to my family. My dad re- decided to go back home. He's sick of being displaced and He's trying to convince the rest of my family to join him. I told them not. We cannot convince my dad not to go back home, but at least I can convince the rest of my siblings and nephews not to do so. Um, in the south of Gaza, the situa- the food situation is terrible, but it's much better than the north of Gaza. So people are starving in the north of Gaza and literally like sleeping hungry and um in some cases, and I've seen some of these videos, people are, you know, crushing corns and barley, animal food, because they cannot afford uh, wheat uh, in the north of Gaza. So this is a serious situation. We were talking about 500,000 Palestinians who are stuck in the north of Gaza. They cannot go anywhere. They cannot leave. And they are being stopped. 
So Yusuf, um, when you talk about your, you know, your father going back home and your family members like not not wanting to go back home, it reminds me of what our dear friend Rifat Larir used to tell me that during, you know, previous Israeli assaults on Gaza, families would actually make a decision to to divide themselves so that if there's a big bomb in one area, not all the family gets wiped out. And sometimes it is possible to do that and sometimes it's not. But I mean, I just want to remind listeners of these terrible decisions that people are making each and every hour in Gaza. A lot of your list, our listeners will know this, but it's still worth bringing it home. And it just, for me, it underlines the admiration that I have for these families coping under un imaginably bad circumstances. And I, I just want to you know, send a shout out to all the people in Gaza who are making these tough decisions and looking after the children, scrabbling to get the people out from the destroyed buildings, just keeping their, their lives as much as they can together. And, and I think we should all admire that. It's been going on for 108 days now. Staggering. It's a staggering, um, long time to be when you think about that. And, and yes, indeed, I, I'm familiar with the, the splitting of the families as, as many of our friends in, in Gaza would have explained to us. But we've also seen, as, uh, Yusuf started with, because there's just 10 cities now. These are tent cities with half a million people, one million people in, in winter. Yeah, in uh, uh, one million people in an area that, 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 you know, let's be honest, wouldn't wouldn't be a suburb in in parts of Dublin. And um, and this is what why we're, we're so. And I was um, I do dabble as you guys know with uh, in other in other media channels. And I was listening to a former IDF um, uh. uh speaking about about the these events and what is happening and he and he said it in a in a very dark way whereby um when you said safe zone earlier i got a chill because he said in the media terms we could in military terms we'd have we'd have often called that a kill zone and that's quite a terrifying chilling thing. Now, this is a retired individual. Um, and you know, a lot of this, a lot of what he said was, was just purely from a military standpoint, but they talk in those terms and, and in those, in those, in those ways. So let's, uh, talking of the IDF, let's come back to, um, this big operation, um, that the resistance actually launched, uh, yesterday, I think on Monday, January 22nd. When there was a, a squad, as I understand it from reading Haaretz, there was a squad of uh, Israeli soldiers who were doing one of these things that they do where they intentionally demolish an entire you know, set of buildings, or they did it, as we saw, to Isra University. They did it to many of the faculties, all of the faculties probably, of the Islamic University. I don't know what the, the structure was. It was near the Israeli um, town kibbutz of Kafar Kisafim, um, which is near Deir el-Balah. So they were setting the charges to do one of these big spectacular demolitions, and um, the resistance actually managed to hit them with RPGs and brought the whole building down on top of 21 members of the IDF, which I think um, for the Israeli public, that was like a huge thing, like a huge setback. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Israeli officials and their statements, the Israeli 
President Herzog said that it was a sad and tough day in, in, in Gaza. And as you said, they were trying to demolish um, 10 Palestinian civilian houses to purify the area, quote unquote. And um, they were caught inside, they were hit, and they were surrounded by explosives. And that's why the explosion was so huge. In, in fact, it was caught by Al Jazeera camera. They happened to be uh, on the other side of the fence. And they were able to record these, um, the first moments when this huge explosion took place, um, killing at least 21 Israeli soldiers. And then all these rescue teams were rushed to the area trying to get these Israeli soldiers from under the rubble. Let's remember that there are 7,000 Palestinians who are still under the rubble in Gaza. Uh, over the uh, past three uh, months. And uh, and rescue totally, teams are completely unable to get to them. Absolutely. And they do not have the equipment and they're being targeted. And the number is huge. They cannot handle it. So it's a different situation in Gaza where people are still under um, the, the rubble and uh, many beloved uh, Palestinians do not know the graves of their uh, families because they're still under the rubble. Um, but again, these uh, Israeli soldiers were evacuated and you had all these Israeli settler websites, you know, expressing their sadness. And it, it strikes me because everyone is talking about, you know, Israeli soldiers who were killed in Gaza, describing this as the toughest day since October 7. However, on average, 250 Palestinians are killed, including yesterday. So there are hundreds, at least dozens of Palestinians, much more than 24 um, Israeli soldiers, but they're not mentioned. In fact, the New York Times had a very interesting uh, headline a couple of days ago saying, um, death toll in Gaza is declining mm -hmm. that's like a very interesting way to put it it's, can i come in and just probably say, yes you said it's really important on this because this is what you would do when a, in, a, in an economy that's crashing you would say a property market that's crashing you would say the rate of decline in the in, in the house prices is at the lowest rate that it's been in the last few months and you you know and this is how you put a positive spin on a negative thing but i'm talking about an economy not people and it was actually the onion had had actually predicted this a few the onion satirical website had predicted this this headline uh, i think eight weeks ago and they actually went and ran it and it goes to what happened yesterday with the reports into 21 men who were let's go back to the podcast we did um earlier late last week with the un special rapporteur for housing they were committing domicide they were blowing up and the the, the, the demolition of, of houses and homes and, and removal of, like, literally wiping out towns. That is domicile. And they were members of the serving military of an occupation army. I, ab you know. Absolutely. But but what what brought them down was one RPG. And this is this is what, I, what I'm getting at in terms of the difference in... in, in in reporting, so the Israeli soldiers were planting explosives to blow up 10 civilian homes in the Maghazi refugee camp in Gaza, and then in quotes to purify the area, as, as, as Yusuf said. An RPG, RPG missile fired at them and triggered the explosives that they'd planted and killed 21 IDF soldiers. Now I go to my 
my national news broadcaster RTE News and how they how they put it was 24 Israeli soldiers were killed in Gaza the military said the biggest death toll in a single day since the war began in October now I'm sorry and I I, we abhor the loss of all life but framing matters narrative matters and when when we know in war you know people always say life is precious life isn't precious when you see it like this death is expensive death is a business and this is the business of death and and what happened there um, was the consequence of, as I said, trying to commit domicide. And they've committed it anyway. It's been done. The, the, the homes are not there for people to return to. And yet again, Western media, just by framing, shows that there's a different value put on Palestinian lives than there is on the lives of, as, as Helena quite rightly puts out, an occupying invading force. Actually, on this media framing thing, it's not just the media. It's often uh, in the West political leaders as well. And uh, just going to what's happening between the U.S. military and the Houthis in Yemen, there, there's, um, as we know, President Biden has launched a number of attacks against the people of Yemen, against alleged military sites in Yemen. And it's teetering on the brink of a major escalation. But the Republican opposition in this country is um, kind of criticizing Biden for being not being tough enough on the Yemenis. And there was a a Republican member of the, uh, I think he's a member of the Senate or maybe the House of Representatives, Tom Cotton. And he said, Biden couldn't even take on a bunch of goat herders in Yemen. I mean, this openly racist kind of uh, agitation just continues in the West regarding everything to do with what's with the with the uh, conflicts that are happening in West Asia right now. A bunch of goat herders. Like, give me a break. I mean, this is Orientalism 101, and this is happening when... You know, everyone is talking about the Israeli military uh, and publishing, you know, the images of Israeli soldiers who were killed as they were trying to destroy Palestinian homes in Al-Maghazi, between Al-Maghazi and Dar al-Balah, in, in the central area of the Gaza Strip. That's where my my family um, comes from. And uh, my brother-in-law had to evacuate their, their home in Al-Maghazi. He's a doctor, he's a pediatrician, and he ended up in a tent in Al-Mawasi, uh, in, in Rafah. And Al-Mawasi is being bombed now by the Israeli military. And at the same time, he lost the, his his home in, in, in Al-Maghazi, and he's been paying his loan. And I want people to, to imagine like what it means to, to lose a home you know, in, in Gaza. It's not just like bricks and, you know, buildings. These are memories. And like my brother-in-law has been paying back his loan for the past 12 years and he hasn't finished yet and he lost his home. On the other hand, you have, you know, other Palestinians that are being massacred and killed in Rafah. There is no mention of them. And what Israel describes and designates as a safe zone. I saw um, a video of this young girl in Gaza who the who lost her parents, both of her parents, after an Israeli tank crushed their caravan while they were inside still. And you can see like literally blood coming out of her eyes. Probably you've seen this, Tony. It's very terrifying. And I mean, the silence of the word and their, their cry for Israeli 
military personnel compared to their ignorance and uh, you know cover up of, of what's happening to Palestinian uh, men and women uh, and children on the ground is just uh, astonishing. I, so, yes, so go ahead, go ahead, Helena. I, I was just going to say that inside Israel, um, we are, we now know that there's a lot of different currents. You know, there's the big, um, very powerful settler extremist current that has been referred to. You know, the people that want to purify Gaza away from like all of its Palestinian inhabitants and to rebuild some of the Israeli settlements there um, that that Sharon removed in 2005. There's also the, the hostage families um, who have become quite an organized force. And yesterday I was intrigued to see that a number of the hostage families burst into the Knesset and went into the into the committee hearing rooms where people were discussing budgets and such and they they had a complete disruption in some of those committee rooms i think these these hostage this hostage family movement which is obviously becoming you know increasingly worried that the hostages may end up being killed as those three you know that we know earlier were deliberately targeted by the IDF. And there have been, I think, maybe 20 other hostages whom the resistance has said, you know, have been killed in Israeli air attacks. And as the Israeli military closes in on Khan Yunus, I'm sure that many additional hostages will be killed. And I really feel for their families because their families, like, really do not know what's happening and the families see the the government as being quite unresponsive to their concerns um and are urging negotiations so you know thus far I- the netanyahu government has, has refused all calls for further a further negotiated ceasefire i, I want to be clear though as well and this is not to correct helen at all it's just to say and offer a little bit of balance there are some hostage families some who are zealots and um that's and true they, that's and they've, true and but, they've made the- they've made unbelievably cold statements where you know if my if my son or daughter must die they must die this kind of um rhetoric that we've seen in the extremist areas of of what I think they they're actually a minority I, I Tony agree. and I and I and I think that that Netanyahu has been very eager to use absolutely, them Absolutely absolutely and and it it suits his it suits his agenda and actually which is which is something that we should have mentioned already is the incredible incredible I don't know how it's not a bigger story um to and fro between Netanyahu and the Biden administration in terms of Biden saying that Netanyahu is open to a two-state solution and he's willing to look at these things and Netanyahu not just saying no but taking to Twitter to say that's nonsense it literally he, he took to Twitter and to say no not you know we we will never countenance this under my administration I need to be I need to be X Y and Z and oh well we do we, we you know Israel needs this and we can't have it in in that's in these circumstances and it just went away that the 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 tail literally did wag the dog and it went away. It's 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 astounding. Well, you know, President Biden, with the full, not the full, but the nearly full support of Congress, seems determined to continue giving Netanyahu exactly what he wants. 
you know, and so every so often Biden or Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, will say something like, oh, we heard from the Israelis that they're going to try to diminish the, the casualties in Gaza, or we heard from the Israelis that they may be open to a talk of a ceasefire. And then Netanyahu comes back and says, no, no, no. And that reminds me of the time in 2015, you know, when Biden was the, the vice president here in the United States and the and President Obama had just concluded the um Iran nuclear deal called the JCPOA and Biden came here and he went to Congress and he said you know this is a terrible deal and he you know he actively um agitated against the diplomacy of the president and everybody just rolled over and the, the money continued to flow to Israel. The weapons continued to flow to Israel in 2015. And the same thing today, nine years later. So, you know, tail wagging the dog. Yes. <laughs> you know, we need to take these statements, Tony, um, from Israel's most radical ministers who are, you know, shaping policies now. And we've seen many of these statements. For example, um, Israel's foreign minister, Israel Kass, he was at a, uh, you know, a very important EU meeting, and he proposed building an artificial island that would, you know, uh, host Palestinians, not just Palestinians from Gaza, but also Palestinians from the West Bank. And then after the outrage he caused, uh, he said, oh, no, uh, we mean to say to build an artificial seaport for Gaza. So why why would we build an artificial seaport for Gaza when Gaza has an actual seaport or used to have one until Israel destroyed it? Um, this is how, you know, these Israeli ministers think about Palestinians. And uh, we've seen the, sta the statement coming out uh, from Israel by the minister of so-called heritage calling for a new king Gaza. This is, you know, this is the Israeli government that we have today. And Netanyahu is very clear. He goes to Twitter, he goes to social media, in his private meetings, he, he, he has the same position. He doesn't change it. And he said, if it wasn't for me, a Palestinian state would have been established. So this is, and he said, you know, of course, we will have to always have an Israeli control um, west of the uh, Jordan uh, River. And um, again, this is the antithesis of a Palestinian uh, state. Uh, so as long as Netanyahu is there, and I, I think this is actually the position of the majority of Israeli politicians, because under you know the Labour uh, Party, under uh, the Likud, under uh, Israel Beitona, all these political parties from left to right. A Palestinian state was never established. And I think this is something uh, Israeli politicians, uh, regardless of who they are, uh, agree on. If we look at the uh, charter of the Likud party, um, it describes the West Bank as Yehudia, Yehuda and Samaria. And these are like the biblical terms used uh, by radical Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Um, and again, this is the position of every other uh, political party in Israel. There is no Palestinian state, and as Palestinians, we know it. Actually, the Likud Charter originally had the state of Israel um, 
both west of the Jordan River and east of the Jordan River in what is now Jordan. And then they say, oh, we're being very, very um, generous and, and we're trying to make a compromise. We will let the Arabs keep the area east of the River Jordan, but we need to keep the, the land west of the River Jordan. And that is the map that Netanyahu has taken to the United Nations. It shows Israel in the whole of the area of Mandate Palestine. So, you know, he is very clear. And actually, uh, the head of the EU Commission now, Tony, you're, you're Yosef, Yo, Yosef Borrell. Yeah. So, so, okay. There are these two people. There's Ursula von der Leyen, yes. who is an outright hawk and a Zionist. And then there's Josip Borrell, who is somewhat more, more, um, reasonable. And he, he, he came out very strongly after the meeting with, um, the Israeli foreign minister, Yisrael Katz. And he said the EU is, is absolutely dedicated to a two state solution. Um, is that going to make any difference? <laughs> um, well, okay. I, I'll tell you how much of a difference it'll make. You heard what happened when they went in for a meeting where they thought they were going to discuss the what happens, uh, you know, the, the, the day after. On the day you after. You heard what happened. You heard what, 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 the, what the presentation from the Israeli side was, did you? Yeah, well, that's what it, Yusuf was referring uh, the, to, the island. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so when, when you go with an artificial island off Gaza and you're, you're thinking that you're going to have this and the people are talking about, and the people are talking, like Yosef Burrell, um, is, is it more closely aligned to the Spanish government and the Spanish government have been very vocal in terms of their support for, for Palestinian rights and for the Palestinian authority, um, and for the, the, you know, for, for the need for a ceasefire. They were one of the first in the EU to call yeah, for it. They, they voted for the ceasefire in yeah. the UN General Assembly. I mean, and, and they've had, they've had, um, and and they've suffered from it as well, by the way. But Ursula von der Leyen, who who I remind people all the time, is unelected, elected within. Uh, it's like you know we vote for our MEPs, and then our MEPs get together and they say, "Well, we'll put this other committee above our heads, who will who will actually make who can actually make other decisions for us." So when when she's gone on several solo runs, we'd call them, where she's gone off and done a thing on her own without any of the blessing or or. Or um, the will of the European um, as Europe as a whole, but because it's split, I don't think it's going to make any difference. Because ultimately, there, there's going to be huge upheaval this year. There's full European Parliament elections, so we're going all the way back to all of all of all of our everybody's going back to the polls to vote for our new MEPs. Um, can we all vote for, for Claire Daly? I got, can I can I bring that up for a moment? Because it's quite humorous. You say that everybody there's this. There's this mentality in mainstream media where they say in, in Ireland that Claire Daly, Mick Wallace, Luke Ming Flanagan are embarrassed us when they go off. And the only reason they get in is because people won't vote for, they don't take European elections seriously. So therefore, we just go with the old radicals and send them off. And then you see the work that they do. And I'm talking to Luke Ming Flanagan this evening. Um, and happy birthday, Luke, if you're listening. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to these people and they're, they're actually in there and they're, they're a counterbalance to the orthodoxy because our, our, party of government currently is Fine Gael and they're members of the EPP and it was the EPP who ins inserted the amendment to say calls for a ceasefire once Hamas are defeated and um, the hostages have been returned. So it was, you know, so yes, we need those radicals. You can you can have person you you don't have to like everybody. You don't have to think you'd like to go for a beer with Claire Daly, but you have to understand that someone sometimes someone who's that 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 
that stone in the shoe. Yes, please. We'll have. We need more stones in the shoe, more pebbles in the shoe, and more and more troublemakers. And especially at 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 when it's you know because it's well, it's not our domestic politics. We we don't tend to think about it. Yet it's more impactful globally than you know what happens four kilometers from my door in in Leinster House. Um. Look, I, I, I just want to raise one final thing, and it's because I was speaking to someone who's um, who works with UNRWA, and they were telling me that um, they've uh, they found out that they had COVID uh, because there was there were some COVID tests available, but there was no medicines available. <laughs> um, and this is, you know, it goes to what Yusuf was saying about famine. Now, with famine, you get disease, and when you when you get disease and famine, you get death. And, uh, the, you know, we said this, I think, way back in, like, episode two or three, guys, nothing kills like hunger. And here we are now where people are now hungry and the the COVID virus must be rampant if, if it's showing up in, in these numbers. And, you know, you've got an area where there's half a million people that weren't there all intense. So it's just, it's absolutely staggering. And, and very, very vulnerable. Yeah. You know, you, you harking back to episode two, reminds me that we're now on episode 20 and I just want to send a, a sh- big shout out to both of you, um, Yusuf and, and Tony, for really making this palcast into something that goes all around the world. I mean, we've had some really spectacular guests and I think what we're doing is we're, we're really helping to build this worldwide web, <laughs> if you like, of, uh, solidarity with the with the struggle of the people of Palestine so you know as tony says one world one struggle we are helping to make this a reality and thank you both both of my great colleagues here absolutely uh thank you both and in fact palestinians trust the eu as much as they trust the united states <laughs> uh, i think the moment the eu can stop uh, the Israeli government from demolishing EU-funded projects in the West Bank. That's when, where as Palestinians, we will start somehow to count on the EU. They even cannot stop the demolition and destruction of EU-funded projects in the West Bank. But at the same time, if you look at their social media accounts, EU and Israel, they're celebrating Israeli politicians, uh, including politicians that they describe as uh, radical. So, um, you know, we've lost hope in, in EU politics and in American politics and the, the way they handle the Israeli government and the way they look at Palestinians. We're done with them. Um, this is for, for, you know, a conclusion. And uh, uh, this conversation will always, you know, continue uh, bringing in more expertise and uh, people to talk about Gaza and what's happening on, on the ground, and especially that Israel is advancing more towards the south and circling Khan Yunus uh, from uh, the west as well. We've seen the same scenario that taking place at uh, Al-Quds Hospital, Shifa Hospital, and more recently Al-Aqsa Hospital. is taking place at Nasser Hospital, Al uh, Khair Hospital in Khan Yunis. And it's very terrifying because Nasser Hospital is now turning into a graveyard, just like a Shifa Hospital was turned into a graveyard. It's too risky to, you know, take bodies and bury them outside the hospital at a proper graveyard because Israeli snipers are shooting at people and uh, crushing their tents and 
caravans with tanks, literally, uh, as we talk. Um, the situation is still very bad, especially with starvation uh, in the north of Gaza. Uh, people eating animal food in 2024. What a shame. I, I think the world should be ashamed forever um, after w what we have seen in Gaza. Um, we will continue the conversation, as I said. Thank you again, Tony and Helena. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, more discussions and guests uh, next week. Um, but before I conclude, I would like to thank our uh, co-sponsors, the Hashim Saini Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya. And uh, to thank my great co-hosts, Helena Coben, the president of Just uh, Word Educational, and Tony Groves of the Echo Chamber uh, podcast from Dublin. Uh, thank you, pals, and talk to you next week. <laughs>